Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. As we continue our new sermon series on the book of 1 Samuel, we address an ongoing problem in much of human leadership, power abuse. From today's narrative, we'll be specifically focusing on the abuse of power by spiritual leaders. Now, it's not a topic we often talk about in the church, but by the end of this message, I hope and I pray we'll understand why it is so vital now more than ever that we need to start discussing it and calling it out. There is, or at least there used to be, a tendency to idealize spiritual leaders, assuming that as a youth director, Bible teacher, ministry coordinator, a pastor, a priest, an elder, a deacon, a bishop, etc., that because someone held a position of authority in a religious community, he or she ought to exhibit upright and admirable character. But sadly, all too often in the history of the church, the reality has not reflected the ideal. Over these past few years, and certainly in the last three decades, we have witnessed an erosion of trust in spiritual leadership, especially among the younger generation. We've all heard our share of stories and examples of unethical and self-indulgent practices, unscrupulous and toxic behaviors, straight-up harassment and mistreatment by those with spiritual power towards those to whom they were supposed to be ministering to and caring for. As we'll learn from our passage today, this is sadly not a new problem. Turning our attention towards a priest named Eli and his sons Hopni and Phineas, we will witness not only a terrible abuse of spiritual leadership, but also the consequences of the blatant misuse of such divinely given power. And if this all sounds too depressing, fear not, for in the midst of all this brokenness, which we don't like to face, we will see and hear yet again God's promise and work of amazing grace. So let's listen to the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. Today's reading, 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 26. Eli's wicked sons. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. 
Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just a reminder, with this sermon series, keep your Bibles open because the passage we're looking at is always going to be longer than what's read. So, the story of Samuel now shifts from a woman named Hannah, a woman we saw last week whose personal struggle with infertility reflected the barrenness of Israel during this same period of history. Last time, we witnessed the miraculous birth of Hannah's son, Samuel a child who will not only be the answer to Hannah's prayer, but eventually the means by which the Lord will make his people fruitful again. But that's still to come. For now, as Hannah and Elkanah, her husband, and their family return home, we are given more of a glimpse of just how bad, how troubling things are among the people of Israel. Our focus turns to a man named Eli, someone we met earlier the high priest of the Lord, who you might remember when Hannah was pouring out her soul to God, at first didn't recognize her deep piety, and instead, do you remember, accused her of being drunk. This same Eli is actually more than just a high priest. Eli is also the next-to-last judge of Israel. A little background here. After coming into the Promised Land under the leadership of Moses' successor, Joshua, the people of Israel, rather than unifying as a nation, remained 12 independent territories. They only came together in times of war when facing the threat of a common enemy. And this went on for, for 400 years, as it's all recorded in another book of the Bible called Judges. The book of Judges gets its name from the leaders that God would raise up during this period of transition to save his people from the hands of their enemies. And when we talk of judges, these individuals, they weren't judges in our legal sense of the word. No, they were rather military leaders. As the story of the Bible continues from the end of the book of Judges to 1 Samuel, Israel remains a tribal society. And the tabernacle of the Lord at Shiloh has become the center of Israel's religious and political life. And Eli, the high priest, is now the next judge of Israel. Eli, who followed Samson as judge, confronts the same external threat that Samson did from a group known as the Philistines. And we'll talk more about them in a few weeks. But the point for now, the point of all this, is to underscore that Eli, as both the high priest and the judge over Israel, was a very powerful and influential leader. 
However, the focus of this story is really less about Eli than it is his two sons, Hopni and Phineas. They served under their father as priests of the Lord. But, as we quickly find out, Eli's two sons are far from being good spiritual leaders for God's people. Abusing their authority, Hopni and Phineas are taking advantage of others and exploiting everyone for their own personal gain. They are described as scoundrels who had no regard for the Lord. And we soon learn exactly why Hopni and Phineas have such a bad reputation. Two specific abuses of power are mentioned. First, instead of offering up the animal sacrifices, as carefully laid out in the Torah, in the books of the law like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Hopni and Phineas were taking more than their designated portion of the meat, thereby robbing the rest of the community. In fact, they didn't even try to hide what they were doing. If you look at the text carefully, so brazen were Eli's sons that they sent their servant to pounce on the meat while it was still being boiled, meaning while it was still raw. Hopney and Phineas didn't even bother to wait for the fat to burn off. And if you know your Old Testament sacrificial law, that's a joke. (laughs) you know this was a direct insult to the Lord. Why? Why would this be insulting to God? Well, to keep it simple, the core principle of the sacrificial system was to offer the best to God. When it came to the meat offerings, the best included the fat. The offering of sweet aroma from the fat of the meat was explicitly reserved for the Lord alone. But Hopney and Phineas were so greedy, so gluttonous, they didn't just steal from the people, they stole what belonged to God, too. And both of them did so, we're told, by force. Anyone among the people who dared to complain was threatened with violence. Tragically, Eli's son's abuse of power did not stop here. Later, we are told Hopney and Phineas were also taking advantage and violating the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. As Eli's sons slept with these women who sought to minister to the Lord, the inference is this sexual relationship was not consensual. Manipulating their authority, Hopni and Phineas took the women near at hand with the same force as they grabbed the meat from the offerings. And just like the pilfering of the sacrifices, their sexual abuse of these women was open and blatant, widely known within the community. Hopni and Phineas Two priests who were responsible for leading the people in worshiping the Lord were twisting that worship to serve their own personal benefit at the cost of the dignity and well-being of others. Not surprisingly, the conduct of Eli's sons negatively affected the health of the community, particularly tainting the people's view of worshiping the Lord. However, there is a ray of light in the midst of all this ever-present darkness. As we hear But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. The glimmer of promise in the present, the reason for hope in the future is Samuel. Young Samuel, whom we are reminded is just a boy during this time. Remember, after she had weaned him, Hannah dedicated her son Samuel to the Lord's service at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And since that moment, in the midst of all this wanton abuse of power, Despite the contempt being displayed before God, Samuel continues to be dedicated to serving the Lord and the Lord's people. 
Samuel, the pastoral intern, works in the tabernacle among the people, all decked out, we're told, in a linen ephod, a vestment usually associated with a priestly ministry. It was in an ornate garment that incorporated gold and blue and purple and crimson yarns, fine linen, and two onyx stones set in gold latticework, stones that together bore the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And in the midst of this description, Hannah makes a brief cameo in our story. Her presence in this point, at this point functions like one of those montages in the movies used to illustrate the passage of time. In this case, it's marking how Samuel as a child grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now, even though Hannah was blessed to have more children after her miraculous firstborn son, she continued to remember and express her love to Samuel. We're told each year when Samuel's family came up to Shiloh for the harvest festival, Hannah brought a new robe that she had made for her son. The robe Hannah makes for Samuel each year is probably something suitable for his role in the ministry of the tabernacle, a liturgical robe to wear with his linen ephod. It's a really sweet moment because as a growing boy, Samuel probably needed an annual wardrobe update because by the end of each year, his robe would no longer fit properly. But all of this is not just to underscore Samuel's physical growth. That's not the only thing that's being highlighted here. His spiritual growth and maturity are emphasized as well. In fact, a great compliment is given to Samuel as it is said that he continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with the people. That's the kind of praise that's later reserved for another young child who was declared to be the Messiah of Israel, one Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Samuel will be no Messiah, but what is being underscored here is how the Lord is working. The Lord is working despite the failure and the mistreatment by the religious leadership that in Samuel, God is raising up his means of the people's eventual redemption and restoration. But for now, we're told as the years passed, Samuel just kept growing up to love the Lord and serve his people while the sins of Hophni and Phinehas continued unabated. Now, at some point, some point along the way, word of what his sons were doing got back supposedly to Eli. But let's be frank here. Let's just kind of call it out. If Hopni and Phinehas were flagrantly abusing their spiritual authority and their power, and if report of their appalling conduct was widely circulated among the people, then Eli probably was very much aware of what was going on. All indications appear to be that Eli didn't want to know that he turned a blind eye to what both of his sons were doing. Seemingly, the only reason that Eli finally rebukes Hopni and Phinehas when he was very old is because things have gotten so bad that Eli has no other choice. So Eli confronts his sons with their wrongdoings. He laments about how barefaced their transgressions are before all the people. He informs them that he hasn't heard anything good about their leadership. And he rhetorically asks why, why they would do such a thing. And finally, Eli warns Hopni and Phinehas of the gravity of not just their offenses, but their posture towards the Lord. And if we're paying close attention, let me clarify what Eli means here when he delineates between sinning against one another versus sins against the Lord. Eli is not suggesting that when we sin against each other that we are not at the same time offending God. No. What Eli is underscoring is there is a difference There's a difference between disobeying in the midst of an honest relationship of seeking and wrestling with the Lord. There's a difference between that and the kind of rebellion where one knowingly and self-consciously, openly and brazenly seeks to do wrong in order to defy God. 
not out of a matter of conscience or some type of soul searching, but in purposeful and unreserved spite towards the Lord. And this distinction is so important because it clarifies what we are told in light of how Hopney and Phineas respond to their father's reproof. Tragically, but perhaps not surprisingly, Eli's sons refuse to listen to their father. We are told, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, a casual reading here might suggest that Hopney and Phineas didn't listen to Eli because the Lord had decided to put them to death. In, in other words, Eli's sons resist their father's reproach because the Lord already had judged them as being beyond saving. But God's final judgment upon Eli and his house has yet to come in this story. We're not there yet, so that's not what's going on here. No, what is being emphasized is in their unequivocal rejection of the Lord, Hopney and Phineas refused their only means of hope and salvation. And apart from turning and yielding before the grace of God, Eli's sons are therefore both left to all that remains, apart from the grace of God, suffering the consequences of their sins according to the moral order created and maintained by the Lord, which is death. Eli confronted his sons, but apparently it was too little too late. Eventually, having looked down enough on this sorry scene, God sends a man from God, a prophet, to speak on his behalf to Eli. And after reminding Eli of both the privilege and the responsibility of the calling of the priesthood, the Lord accuses Eli and his sons of scorning my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling. The Hebrew word translated here as scorn is a word that actually means literally to kick. Both times this word is used in the Old Testament, it's in reference, the context of the word suggests defiance or contempt. In other words, the metaphor being invoked here is one of cattle that after being well-fed and provided for by their owner, suddenly and surprisingly kicks back against their master's direction and spurns the yoke put upon them. Similarly, God is charging Eli and his sons of kicking back against his leading and spurning his authority. As God goes on, he narrows his rebuke away from focusing on Hopney and Phineas to addressing just Eli. And Eli is accused of honoring his sons above the Lord. Now that may seem unfair to us, for Eli to be held complicit in the behavior of his sons. I mean, after all, didn't he confront them? I mean, didn't Eli call them out? He warned them, didn't he? But let's remember, Eli waited a long time to step in and deal with his son's abuse of power. Furthermore, when Eli finally did confront Hopney and Phineas, Eli was all bark and no bite. Eli protested against what they were doing, of course, and Eli, sure, he verbally admonished his sons, but he continued to let them serve in their positions of spiritual authority. Remember, Eli was both the high priest and judge over Israel, inarguably the most powerful person in the community. And yet, even though Eli was the one person in a position to not only stand up, but also to remove his sons from serving as priests, he allowed their abuse of power to continue. Today, we refer to this kind of complicity as enabling. Eli lacked the righteous indignation which Jesus manifested when in his day he cleansed the temple. And the silence of Eli's inaction is held here to be just as much of a failure of spiritual leadership and an abuse of power as what his sons have done. If we read between the lines, subtle hints are given as to why Eli chose to do nothing. And the answer is because Eli personally profited from their sins. Specifically, 
In the stealing of the best parts of the meat during the sacrifices, this is indicated by a clever but tragic play on words when it says Eli, like his sons, literally fattened himself on the offerings of the Lord's people. For abusing their office, for taking advantage of the people entrusted to their care, for dishonoring the worship of the Lord by serving themselves instead of honoring God through serving others, Eli and his family are told they will not only lose their roles as spiritual leaders in Israel, they will also lose their lives. Another, as of yet unnamed family in the line of Aaron, will be given the office of the priesthood. All of the descendants of Eli will either face an untimely death or a life marked by miserable envy of the prosperity of others. And here in the judgment of God upon the house of Eli, we see mirrored the prophetic words of Hannah's earlier song in this chapter, that song of the Lord's enactment of justice by reversing the fortunes of the arrogant and the greedy with those who are suffering and going hungry. Now, Eli himself won't live to see all of this happen, but he will live long enough to witness the sign that will confirm this word of defined judgment. The moment when his own two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, both will die on the same day. This is an awful story on so many levels. It's hard to listen to without just changing the channel, right? But it's again a story we need to hear because it's all too familiar. However, before I go there, I want to take a moment to clarify what this passage is not about. Because you see, many have used this tragic tale as a parenting lesson. And I believe that this is a mistake, a costly mistake, liable to do more harm than good. The logic of such an application with this story is that, well, if Eli had done a better job raising his sons, Hopney and Phineas, all of this would never have happened. But the thing is, While we may choose to infer this, nothing in this story tells us anything about how Eli raised his boys. For all we know, he did a bang-up job bringing them up. No. At a bare minimum, what we have in this story is Samuel, right? Samuel, who in a manner of speaking becomes Eli's adopted son, and despite being raised before the example of some wicked men, Samuel did not himself follow their example. No. Contrary to well-meaning Christians who like to quote Proverbs 22.6, the Bible makes no absolute promises in terms of the raising of our children. God's Word speaks of probabilities rather than promises. Of course, there is no question that it's ideal, would be better for children to be raised, not only by parents, but also around family members and other adults who teach and model solid, consistent, and faithful living like Jesus. But as many godly parents who seek with honesty and integrity to raise their children in the Lord well know, there is no guarantee of one's children as they become adults leading positive, upright lives that glorify Christ. While wise and godly parenting matters and has a significant influence on the adults children grow up to become, children as they become adults are responsible for their own decisions. Some sons and daughters for reasons that can't always be narrowed down to bad parenting, decide to go prodigal, to walk away from the faith in which they were raised. And I know that's hard and I know it hurts, but when this happens, we can't and we shouldn't try to control their relationship with the Lord. It always ends badly. Instead, we need to keep being a witness to Christ, less by what we say and more by how we are relying on the grace of God. 
how we are following and looking like Jesus and living forgivingly, justly, and lovingly through our own lives. And a quick word for those families right now or maybe then who didn't have it all together, who may be plagued by regret or poor decisions. Never forget the grace of God is greater than our shortcomings and our failures. Never forget that. Again, if anything we have in this story through the example of Samuel, it's this. This story demonstrates how the Lord can work and move in the midst of the dysfunction and even the worst evils within our families. No matter what family legacy we come from, whatever the trauma of our past, God in Christ can still redeem it and lead us back home to him. But again, this is not a story about parenting. No, this is a story about the failure and accountability of spiritual leadership. This is about how Hoppy and Phineas, as adults, serving in their jobs as priests, chose to flaunt and abuse their authority and privilege as spiritual leaders. And the severity of the divine judgment laid upon Eli, Hopney, and Phineas and their house reflects the seriousness and the wider impact of spiritual abuse. There is failure in leadership, and then there is failure in spiritual leadership. Those who profess to speak and act for God bear a calling and a responsibility that if abused, not only deeply harms individuals, but also corrupts and damages the perceptions others have of the character, of the goodness of the Lord. Any abuse of spiritual power, position, or privilege creates a betrayal of trust, not only between the individual and the one who represents God, it also shatters that individual's confidence in the community of faith as a whole, and oftentimes, ultimately, in Christ as well. What this story and others in the scriptures make clear is religion without faith and integrity isn't just hypocritical. It's dangerous, very dangerous. And the Lord will not let such abuse in spiritual leadership remain ultimately unaccounted for. Now, in case we're all nodding our heads in agreement, but hearing this as a word for pastors like me or elders or those in the community of faith who are perceived as spiritual leaders because of a job or a position title, let's remember if we're following Jesus as disciples of Christ, we are all called to be spiritual leaders. I mean, make no mistake, you and I are broken, deeply flawed, like Eli, like Hopney and Phineas in ourselves and by ourselves, left to ourselves and given the right circumstances, we are liable to become as corrupt as they became. But the good news, the gospel, is that we have been rescued and redeemed by the faithful priest who the Lord in this story promises to Eli. The one he promises he will raise up in his place. A priest, he writes, who shall do to do what is in my heart and mind. The ultimate and final fulfillment of that priest is God coming down to us in Jesus Christ as our perfect high priest, forgiving and covering the cost of our sin while at the same time extending to us more than just mercy, but the grace of resurrection, of coming back from the dead and enabling us to live and become our best eternal selves together in community with him. But the whole point of the Great Commission after the resurrection and the gift, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is that as Christians, we aren't just called to believe in Jesus, but to lead others to Christ. 
In following Jesus, directed by his spirit, we are to witness and to serve others for him as his representatives, as his ambassadors. The parameters of our spiritual leadership in Christ are profoundly wide and deep. All our words and our actions before others are intended to reflect what Jesus would say or what Jesus would do if he were ministering to that person. Because through his spirit at work, in and through us, Christ is present. Do we all recognize our call to spiritual leadership? And are we all answering that call honestly and faithfully? Because we've seen far too much abuse of power in the church. The coercion, the manipulation, the violation of men and women, of children, of minorities and other cultures, all in the name of Jesus. We've witnessed the suppression of truth, the withholding of knowledge, the denial of responsibility, the blaming of the victim, and the justification for complicity, all in the name of Jesus. We have watched as some have claimed the symbols of Christianity, the Bible, even the cross itself, as some have twisted the theology of our faith in order to give license to vehemently cursing and denouncing people of a different political party, religious faith and ethnicity, who have used the faith as a means to endorse insurrection and violence, all in the name of Jesus. My brothers and sisters, do we recognize our call to spiritual leadership? And are we all answering that call honestly and faithfully? Or are we collectively remaining silent and passive, looking the other way, choosing not to speak, not to act, just like Eli? Let's not miss one of the more significant revelations of this story. Whereas we tend to equate a failure or abuse in spiritual leadership as to whether or not we were on the front lines participating in what is wrong or evil, through Eli's example, we hear both the dangers and the accountability of passively allowing evil in the name of God to happen. As the old saying goes, if we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. Beloved, by divine calling, by the grace of God, we are to be part of the solution and not part of the problem because we are witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spiritual leadership in the Christian faith is not reserved for those who have a specific role or job title in the church. Spiritual leadership is the calling of all who profess to belong to Jesus. Through the knowledge of God's word, the example of the Son, and its submission to the Holy Spirit, we have all been called and empowered to lead by humbly participating in the work of Christ, valuing and empowering others, rescuing and redeeming them, loving and encouraging and guiding others without discrimination and without personal ambition. For spiritual leadership like Jesus means servant leadership, demonstrating God's love for all through self-sacrifice like Christ. And that kind of spiritual leadership that kind of spiritual leadership looks like kneeling down and washing another's feet rather than screaming in that person's face. That kind of spiritual leadership means making more room at the table for others rather than building walls between us. That kind of spiritual leadership means being willing to be sensitive and accommodating to the vulnerable and the exposed rather than to defiantly do what is right in our own eyes. Spiritual leadership like Jesus means acknowledging what power we have and giving that power away, 
using our power to confront the status quo of injustice, using our power for the well-being of others. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot afford to be silent anymore. We need to speak up for the true character of God, not as others try to make the Lord to be in their image, but as God has revealed himself to be in Christ. We need to stand up and represent who Jesus really is and what Jesus is truly about, because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.